All right, we're recording. I'm going to, so the, our, the notes are broken up into sections. You know what I'm going to actually do is go back to the very, very top of the notes. And because not everybody was here the week before, uh, so I want to, I just want to read portions of the Nicene Creed, actually, um, just as a summary of what we talked about last week. So my idea for this morning, or my idea for both mornings combined, is the first morning, which was two weeks ago, to kind of positively present what we believe about God, what we believe about the Trinity, and now this week to negatively say, what do we not say? What are some errors that have happened uh, about the Trinity that we want to avoid? Um, so the Nicene Creed, 381, read, I'm not going to read the entire thing, but in part it reads this, we believe in one God, the Father, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God who was begotten from the Father before all the ages, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, same nature with the Father, and in the Holy Spirit, the Lord who makes us alive, who proceeds from the Father, who's worshipped and glorified together with the Father and the Son. And so we kind of took that and identified different aspects of it. We identified, okay, the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. But what about begotten and proceeding? Uh, the only begotten Son of God, it says. And then down on line 15 of the Nicene Creed, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father. We talked about how begotten and proceeding are how the Son and the Holy Spirit relate to the Father. So they are identical, all three persons are identical in their nature, they're identical in what they are. In other words, they're identical in their attributes, that's why we talked about the attributes of God, right? The attributes of God describe God's nature. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all share a nature. Um, begotten, not made, speaking of the Son, same nature with the Father. So that's what they're doing with the Nicene Creed, which is basically our doctrine of the Trinity, that's why I'm using it. Um, so begotten means, well, it doesn't mean that the Son was created, although that's how humans beget. I was created when my dad begot me, right? But no, between Jesus and, between the Son and the Father, the Son is begotten eternally, without time, right? So he's, what does that mean? In some sense, this is as far as we can get, he is from the Father. So the Son is begotten of the Father, which means he is from the Father, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father, which means, similar, he's from the Father. Beyond that, we're not really sure what begotten and proceeding positively mean, except that it means that they're from the Father. So, that's kind of a five-minute spark notes summary of, of that. Um, there's three persons and one nature. These three persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are one God. So that's what we talked about um, last time we were here. So that's kind of our doctrine of the Trinity light edition. Um, okay, let's see here. We ended last time um, with nature's distinct. Okay. Um, 
Okay, the, the, the only way in which they are eternally distinct is in their eternal relations with each other, how they relate to each other. We talked about that. Um, I forgot to mention this last time. The operations are how God interacts with creation. Relations are how God interacts with himself eternally. Operations are how God interacts with creation in time. The word economy, I didn't mention this last time, but the word economy is the same thing as operation. How do they work? I don't usually use the word economy because to me, economy, it doesn't like in my brain register with like how someone interacts with creation. An operation is how someone operates. So that to me is more intuitive. But economy is a synonym that, that you, should, you should know about. Um, and so I, I should mention this last time because this is kind of in the positive articulation of what do we say about the Trinity. But there are um, two kind of different conceptions of the Trinity that are both legitimate. I have offered one of those conceptions, starting with the Father, and then the Son, and then the Holy Spirit, and say, okay, they are one God. But my, conceptually, I'm starting with the person. I'm saying, okay, there's one God, the Father. And that's what the Nicene Creed is doing. And that, so that's one way, starting with the persons and then saying they share a nature, they share an essence. But in the West, they start by talking about that nature, that essence. We talked about this after class, but we didn't talk about it in class, and I really should have mentioned this. Neither of these are wrong. These are just different perspectives, if you will. They're both, they're both the Trinity, they're both legitimate. Um, but in the West, and so that's where we are in the Western world, Protestantism and Catholicism usually follow this concept of saying there is one essence within which there are three persons, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So far, does that make sense, what I'm describing? It, it's not a very practically different thing, to be honest. It's just a different concept. So are these just two different ways of looking at pretty much the same exact thing? That is a really good way to put it, David. Yes, okay. I would say so. For, for in, this is for me, and I get this from one of my professors in, in seminary. Although neither is wrong, I think that what the Bible does is the first way, by identifying a person and saying that that person is God. Right. As opposed to saying, there's the divine nature. Within that divine nature are three persons. I, I don't... I, I'm not aware of any Bible verse that does that. I mean, natures themselves are like a philosophical concept that we've created to articulate what we're talking about, and I think that's really helpful. But when the Bible says God, it's referring to a person, the Father, or the Son, or the Holy Spirit. It's not referring to a nature. So that's why um, I prefer the Eastern concept, actually, of conceptualizing God the Father and his Son, and his Holy Spirit, who are one God. It almost sounds like when you say divine essence within which are the three persons, it sounds like you're almost placing God into a container. Perhaps, which... that's, perhaps that's one way to put it, yeah. They don't mean that. Okay. You know, um, yeah, yeah. But yeah, the way we talk about it can lead people to believe certain things, too. Because... The concept I'm articulating that the Eastern Orthodox tradition is no notorious for, some people push on this, like, it sounds like you're talking about three gods, man. You got to start with the one essence, because God is one, we're monotheists, you know. I think I do fine by saying there's one God, and his son, 
and the Holy Spirit, who are one God. You, you know, I kind of like bookend it, you, you know, like one God, you know, but I understand that. So anyway, it's hard to talk about the Trinity. Those are two ways that are legitimate to talk about the Trinity is kind of why I bring that up. So I have a um, quick, like a twofold question. Now, Gnosticism is like where they believe like that it's, like, it's all spiritual, like we, like not a, um, not a physical being type of thing, right? I forget what Gnostics specifically believe, but we're going to go through all the major heresies in just a second. Okay, because I was and just... So we'll probably cover whatever they believed. Because like, <laughs> I, um, I was wondering now, if you would consider that God is the essence and like refer to him as an essence and not as a person, now would that be towing the line of Gnosticism in a sense? I see what you're saying. Pro- probably not. Okay. Especially because... Even, no matter who you are, whether you're a Catholic, a Protestant, or an Eastern Orthodox, you do believe that God is three persons. Okay. You do believe it. Yeah. However you articulate it or think about it, you believe it. Okay. Whereas Gnostics, as far as I know, and I, I'm not well read on Gnosticism, but they, I do think they rejected the Trinity. Yeah. So, Alex, do you know about that? They cray-cray. They have, like, completely conceptual They cray-cray. Well, there you have it. Okay. That's, that's, yeah, how, yeah. that's the nail in the coffin. I'm glad they're they're basically, like, two term. cosmic powers struggling each other like the god of the old testament oh dear oh yeah 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 yeah, that's right they're like they're completely off the like yeah that's yeah they're they're off they're even off the heresy rails yeah yeah yeah, yeah. they're not even heretics they're just different religion altogether (laughs) (laughs) which is the whole thing about jesus and mary too yeah which is a whole yeah 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 the rabbit hole right there i was just trying to remember because i know like one of the early church fathers like after the apostles had wrote had like gone i Irenaeus against heresies. Yes, yes, yes. Um, they were. He was like talking about um, a set, a particular sect that only that only believed that like once death happens, there's no physical body resurrection of the people who died, and it was just all spirit. That's right. Yeah, anything physical is bad. Yes, is literally what they thought. And that's where I was wondering if now, if we only believe in the essence, are we towing that line? Yeah. And I, I think probably not, but especially because no one, in, no, no Christian in the West would say I only believe in the essence. Yeah. They would say, the way I think about God is by starting with His essence and then the persons. Okay. okay. So they are different than right. Gnostics. So if I can just make a quick counter. Um, Do it to that. Uh, when we are sharing the gospel with others, yeah. to me, it seems like I would want to avoid referring to God as essence if they're not yeah. already a believer, because that could lead to a wrong interpretation. Yeah, as to I think who that's God right. Is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think that's right. Yeah. I, perhaps like a how how do we? This is a great kind of applied question that we're bumping into. How do we like evangelize with the theology that we have about the Trinity? You might literally say, like, look, I believe in the God who sent his son and who sends his spirit, one God, to interact with you and to save you. You know, that feels tangible and concrete to me. Oh, yeah. And then to say, look, they share an identical nature. They are the same stuff, you know, quote, unquote. We don't want to say God is stuff because God's not material. Okay, sure. You, you know, it's a, sure. But like, they have the same substance, if you want to say that. But even substance might imply material. So anyway, they are identical in terms of what they are, is how I like to say it in like normal people terms. Um, and I think that's 
like a, a tangible, something that people can at least understand conceptually what we're talking about when we talk about it that way. Yeah, I don't go into, oh, the essence. Of it. It, it, you know, it's like that means something for Christians, but it really doesn't mean a whole lot to right. people on the outside of these kinds of conversations. Because at that point they could like be like, well, it's just circular reasoning, and like now you're just coming back to say the same thing. Yeah, sure, sure, and sure. Right, 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 like, right, right. Defending the Bible, I've had a conversation with somebody who's like, it's just circular reasoning, but I'm like, you don't defend a lion because a lion can defend itself. Sure, sure, so, sure. Well, yeah, 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 sure. Right, right, right. Yeah. So, yeah, really what we're doing here is learning how to say what the Bible's saying, not so much learn how to defend it, yeah. but... What is the clearest way that I can present God's truth? And then let the lion run from there. So, yeah, good stuff. Um, so we talk, I will, I'll briefly touch on this. Um, we asked the question, are the operations, so how God interacts with the world, representative of the eternal relations? This is kind of where, um, I don't know if controversy is the right word, but differences line up. So, so far, even in the different conceptions, we're articulating the same thing. So positively, we're saying the same stuff, right? And we mentioned this a little bit, so I won't double-click on everything that we talked about, but basically, is the way that God interacts with the world representative of the way that God interacts with himself? Are the operations reflective, representative of the operations or the economy? Operations should be here. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Are the operations or economy, thank you, Alex, representative of the eternal relations, how God interacts with himself? Is the way that God interacts with himself the cause of why God interacts with creation a certain way? So we talked about a few things. Uh, John 17, now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. The way that Jesus came to earth demonstrates that the Father has given him everything, which is their relation. The Son is from the Father, right? He's begotten. So that, to me, indicates, yes, the operations are representative, are consistent with the eternal relations. The relation of begotten, the relation of fromness, is consistent with the way that Jesus executes his salvation. Hey, because I just interacted with the world this way, people now know that I'm from you, you know? So anyway, that's one thing. But also something we didn't talk about, and I realized this on the drive home on Sunday, like, wait, there's more to this. Um, we're made co-heirs with the son, specifically because he is the son. We are sons of God, in short, and daughters. But in the, Old Test in the New Testament times, this is for women as well, but in New Testament times, the firstborn son got the inheritance. And so all of us, whether we're male or female, secondborn or firstborn, are made firstborn sons of God because he is the firstborn son of God. So even the way as son that he relates to the father, he makes us have that same relationship with the father himself. We become sons of God because he is a son of God. So yeah, his operation is consistent with his relation. His operation made me a son, made you all a son, you know. So that's another thing that I wanted to mention, but also about the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit proceeds from the mouth of God, Deuteronomy 8.3. Well, uh, every word that proceeds from the mouth 
of God is, uh, and man should not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Who brought those words out of the prophet's mouths? The words that proceeded from the prophet's mouths, that was the Holy Spirit who inspired the, um, the, uh, the prophets, right? He's the one who inspires the breath, the mouths of the prophets. All scriptures breathed out by God. That's 2 Timothy, 2 Peter. Men spoke from God in prophecy as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. A bunch of Old Testament passages that say the same thing about the Holy Spirit. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is consistent with his procession from the Father. So I do think, and that's one that I also thought about as I was driving home. I was like, I can't believe I didn't mention that. So anyway, um, I do think that God's eternal relation of begotten and proceeding is consistent with the way that each of the three persons interact with creation. Not every Christian's going to say, in particular Eastern Orthodoxy is going to say, no, you don't know that because they want to make sure you're only talking negatively about God. They don't want to say anything positive about God because they just want to say, God is ineffable. He's unknowable. You know, and that's where their essence and energy stuff comes in. We talked about that with attributes of God. So that's why they deny it. But the reason everyone else accepts it is because of stuff like what I'm sharing. So this bumps into a specific controversy that came up. And we mentioned this after class. So some of you have already heard about it, but not everybody has. And even there were people that left in the middle. So here we are talking about it officially in class. The filioque. What in the world is the filioque? Well, it's the Latin word of this phrase, quote, and from the sun and from the sun. So Western Christianity started to affirm something slightly beyond the Nicene Creed. The Nicene Creed reads that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father, right? Well, the West started to say the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and from the Son. That's filioque. They were writing in Latin. I'll just say the and from the Son controversy because you don't need to learn Latin to be able to interact with this class. So here we go. So this, the difference of saying and from the sun and then saying not and from the sun was the apparent doctrinal reason for the official break between what is now called Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy. This was like the official reason behind um, that disagreement. It's literally called the filioque controversy, which produces the great schism of 1054 in some ways. It's a little bit like, dang, guys, why, why break over this? You know. But anyway, hey, here we go. This is what happened. There was a, I'm not going to go into all the political background, but there was a lot of politics that were happening where someone um, but got elevated as a bishop, um, but it was he was a lay person and was elevated as the archbishop. Maybe not, I don't think they would have used the word archbishop. Um, the new patriarch of Constantinople. So the Patriarch of the East was a lay person, got appointed to that position. Catholics, the Catholic Pope said, hey, you can't do that. We have a tradition in the West that says you can't elevate someone from a lay person to a high role. You have to have him gradually go up. He writes back. Of course, he himself is the guy who got appointed, so he's not going to like this rule. And he says, hey, your prohibition's invalid. Like, we don't understand that to be a valid um, prohibition. Tensions continue to rise. And this new, um, con no, I keep forgetting the word, patriarch, 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 man, okay, this new patriarch also says, and by the way, Rome, you 
affirm the filioque, you say, and from the sun. So you're heretical anyway, so it doesn't really matter, and I can just be, I can just be the guy I want to be. Okay, so that was like an offhanded, you're a heretic, by the way, but it all, it, that exploded the pressure cooker off the whole thing, and all, this became irreconcilable, there was a, a schism. But notice this, the real doctrinal dispute was not actually over the end from the sun statement. It was actually about papal authority. Does that, do you see that? Because the Pope said, hey, you guys uh, have to submit to us. He, he, they literally said, like, so Rome has superior authority to all other patriarchs, so you need to listen to our traditions. And the East said, sorry, man, you don't go here. What are you talking about? I, I, we don't have the same prohibitions. Well, that's fine, but you need to obey us anyway. No, I don't. By the way, you're heretics, so I really don't know what to do. You know, so that's kind of how, but what's going on behind the scenes is, Rome is starting to really emphasize, by this point has already begun to really emphasize the primacy of authority in their pope. That kind of becomes the motivation to a lot of the doctrines that they're going to put forward. Um, but that's what happened behind the scenes with the filioque. I think at the end of the day, it was more about papal authority than it was about this and from the sun thing. I think the church, if there wasn't political stuff in the background, if they didn't pull the heretic card, whatever. I think the church could have figured out how to have unity among the and from the sun controversy, but they didn't. So anyway, things to notice though, the West, that is Rome, said, hey, this is the Nicene Creed now. The East said, you're wrong, that's not the Nicene Creed. You need an ecumenical council to change the Nicene Creed. We have affirmed the Nicene Creed at every previous ecumenical council, and they were right. So Catholicism said, well, okay, our councils in Catholicism are ecumenical now. So there it is. It counts. That, I think that's cheating. Again, I think that's prioritizing papal authority over everything else. Anyway, we're going to move on from that. But that's the background to the and from the sun controversy. Perhaps that's helpful context, especially as you look into it on your own time. Um, but the question for us, I think, uh, I'd rather us not talk a ton, ton about all that history, but as far as the theology goes, is it valid for us to say that the Holy Spirit proceeds from both the Father and the Son? I think that's the question that we're asking. Roman Catholicism, which is Western, along with Protestantism, usually says yes, and the East usually says no, because the East is like, God is ineffable, so we can't know that. But usually the West articulates something similar to what I articulated five minutes ago, which was, indeed, the relations are consistent with the operations. So the West is going to say that, and maybe I only say that because I'm Western and I'm drinking the Western water, but that, here I am and I'm letting you know what I think. Because Roman Catholicism, along with me, will say something like, look, John 14, the Father sends the Holy Spirit, but then they, we go on to say, because he proceeds from the Father. The Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father. That's John 15. So the Holy Spirit eternally proceeds from the Father and therefore consistently, John 14, is sent into um, the world by the Father. Sorry, do you know what that said? She's not down here. I think she's napping in the parish. Okay. All right. We just have, just, we have James and Kim here, so. James. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Just let you know. Yeah. Thanks. Uh -huh. Duly noted. Okay. You need help with that situation? After class, we'll talk about it. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks, Dustin. No okay. What was I? 
I, I have pretty rough ADHD, so I'm, uh, I can get derailed and then totally lose J my uh, John 14. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, okay. Why is the Holy Spirit sent by the Father? The West, along with Alden, says that's because he has the relation of being from the Father. Augustine also said something similar about from the Son. Why is the Son sent into the world to die? Well, because he's from the Father eternally. So, of course, he's sent in time. You know, so that's, that's how the West does it. That's how Alden does it. But because, of, because Jesus says, I will send you the Holy Spirit, we kind of back calculate and we say, okay, if Jesus sends the Holy Spirit, then the Holy Spirit must be from the Son eternally. That's a step, admittedly. That's an, that's an assumption. That's a step. I'm happy to take it, but we need to be honest about that. That's a step. No Bible verse explicitly supports that, except that God reveals himself. God interacts with the world in order to reveal himself to the world, right? Okay, all this. Eastern Orthodoxy, though, is going to say, no, no, no. That consistency that you're identifying, we can't know that. In particular, and I get this from a certain theologian, Vladimir Lowski. I cited him below for the people who wanted a, uh, um, what do you call it? Bibliography. That's one. That's the one. A bibliography. I, I didn't sleep so well last night. Uh, anyway, um, he says, along with most, and he's representing most of Eastern Orthodoxy. I mean, I think they sainted him, actually. Um, he says, look, if the Holy Spirit proceeds from both the Father and the Son, you're taking away from the monarchy of the Father. By monarchy, he does not mean anything related to authority. He means source. You're saying, this is what Lowski's saying, I don't believe this, but this is what he says. If you have the Father, who is the source of everything, including eternally the Son and the Holy Spirit, then if you say that the Holy Spirit is sourced by the Son and the Father, now the Father's no longer the sole source. You're taking away from the personal identity of the Father, is what they say. And so the filioque impairs that monarchy. I don't think that that's necessarily true. I don't think those distinctions are lost because the Father can be the source of the Son and the source of the Holy Spirit. He's still primary, sole source. He's just sourced the Son, who then sources the Holy Spirit. But he's still monarch, and that's a, I, so I don't see how that's taken away. Um, and especially, in particular, where I... The reason that I'm comfortable affirming the filioque, not only do I think that Jesus came into the world to show his own relation, and so therefore I think that the Holy Spirit comes into the world to show his too, but Jesus actually breathes on the disciples in John 20 and says, receive the Holy Spirit. When he said this, there's an upper room, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If Jesus breathes the Spirit, that's exactly what the Father breathes into the creation. That's his operation because he proceeds from the Father. So I'm comfortable saying then that the Holy Spirit proceeds eternally from Jesus as well. So I'm happy to affirm the end from the Son statement, but I also really love that the entire legitimate Christian church affirms the Nicene Creed, so I'm happy to not say it for the sake of being able to say, look, we all say this statement. That's pretty cool. But couldn't you make the argument, too, where, the, where Jesus says, I can do nothing with, uh, except through the Father, and say that he's only, that the Father sent it, so it's it would just come straight from the Father, but the but because of the fact that in John mm. 15, I, that is That go. is a mediating position that's offered by theologians sometimes. Some Eastern Orthodox say, all right, if you say the Spirit is sent from the Son, by the Father, through the Son, yeah. okay, okay, that's like a good compromise. Sure, sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. 
but then through, some people don't feel satisfied with that. Yeah. Because it's like, well, if you're just saying through, then you're not really saying from. It's kind of how... But all things come from the Father, so... It's not the, right. You guys are all over the how people try to interact with each other okay. about this topic. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well said. Well said. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Let's get into some, some concrete Trinitarian errors. Good old heresy. And by that, I don't mean good old. This is rough stuff. We should not call people Christians who believe any of this stuff. This is really heartbreaking. But this is helpful for us to be able to say, oh, yeah, we really can't say that. So I think this is really helpful. This is why there's no other topic I don't think that we're going to spend two weeks on. But I think the Trinity is worthwhile because it is so central and foundational to our faith. So here we go. What are some errors? The first error, in some ways, isn't the biggest one. But the first one, modalism, also known as Sabellianism. I'm going to call it modalism because that's just a more understandable word. What does modalism teach? It teaches that there is one divine person who appears in different modes. Appears in different One divine person who appears in different modes. So, who is the Father? Well, there is no eternal relation between three persons because there's only one person who's just been eternally hanging out, who reveals himself sometimes as Father, sometimes as Son, and sometimes as Holy Spirit. Modalism. Three different modes. Well, here's a verse that modalists will really struggle to reconcile with. Jesus' baptism. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. There are different personal identities in that text. It's not just the same subject, per se that's being described in Matthew chapter 3 in that baptism. Also, Jesus genuinely prays to the Father. He genuinely does. Matthew 11, at that time Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Jesus is thanking the Father for what the Father decided to do as his will. Jesus also distinguishes himself from the Father. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. How about John 14? Jesus answered, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him. And we, plural, we, plural, will come to him and make our home with him. That's not one person. That's a we. That's not one person. There's different subjects there. A common, now often when we try to like get fancy with ourselves, that's usually when we, we commit heresy by accident. So an analogy that sometimes is used in Christianity that's actually modalist is this. Oh, the Trinity is kind of like how the same guy can be a son and a father and a husband. He has different relations with other people, right? No, that one guy is one person. So that's different. That's modalism. I'm a husband now. I'm a father now. I'm a dad now. No. This is a concrete father. This is a concrete son. This is a concrete Holy Spirit who share an identical nature. Sure, this one person in your example shares an identical nature, but it's only one person. That's the problem with that. So anyway, similar with like ice, water, and gas. Like, like oh, it's, it's the same substance, but it's different form, different forms, different modes. Oh boy, that's a heresy. So anyway, 
Now, and we're going to talk more about analogies later, actually, and just talk about how maybe we just shouldn't use them at all. Anyway, Arianism. This is, this is the greatest controversy the church has ever faced, I think. Arianism said the sun is a very great creature. A very great creature. What's wrong with that statement? He ain't a creature. He ain't a creature. He's the creator. He is not created. He is not a creature. The sun is not created. Arius was famous for statements like this. Before he was begotten, he was not. That's not true. Right, because he's eternally begotten outside of time. He has always been begotten. Always. That's mind-blowing, Arius, but we don't deny it. Yeah. So, um, let's see, another, another quote from Arius. The sun has a beginning, but God is without beginning. God begot the sun, who is a perfect creature of God. He was created by the will of God before times and ages. The sun was not before he was begotten. Okay, so this is big problems, right? Now we're saying God the sun is a creature, he's a creation, so he's not really God. So Arianism denies that the sun is God. It denies that the sun is God. A number of verses that Arius used, um, all of the passages about begotten. He was like, look, begotten just means created. I don't really care what you have to say about that. Begotten just means created. Okay, Arius, but the Bible says that there is a, a person who is identified as God who is begotten and uncreated. And he was just like, but hey, begotten means created. So, and this is why the early church in the Nicene Creed actually said, begotten, not made, same nature with the Father. Begotten, not made, eternally begotten, ineffably. We don't understand how God is begotten, but we don't deny it either. But Arius just denied it. So that's, that's the difference there. There's one passage in particular that I want to draw our attention to here. In Hebrews 1, uh, this is under the section, if you're following along, we're in Arianism, parentheses, heresy. Um, that, that's, that's the section we're in. So Hebrews 1 talks about um, how Jesus is better than all creation and how he is God himself. That, that's Hebrews 1. Um, and verse 5 says this, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? Today, I have begotten today. Ooh, that sounds like it's in time. Shoot. Okay. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Okay, pause there. In verse 6 of Hebrews 1, there's a transition between eternity past and then present when he brings the firstborn into the world. The son, notice in verse 5, the son was not today begotten when he came into the world. He was today begotten in eternity past, is the argument of Hebrews 1. You see that? And then, I mean, verse 8, it continues, but of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So he identifies him explicitly as God in Hebrews 1. But it sounds like he's saying today there was a time when he was begotten, when he was created, perhaps even. When he became a son. So what's that saying? Let's look at Psalm 2, which Hebrews 1 quotes. The full text reads, I, this is God, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Okay, so when Hebrews 1 quotes Psalm 2 to say, you're my son, today I have begotten you, 
that itself, Psalm 2 tells us, is itself a decree. A decree that God said, today I've begotten. Well, when did God say that is the question. In eternity past is what it's, we're saying. I'll tell of this eternal decree. You're my son, today I've begotten. But this today is an eternal today. It's, an, it's a time, it's not, it's not in time. Plus, as Psalm 2 goes on, reading verse 10, Now therefore, O kings, be warned, O rulers of the earth, I, uh, excuse me, O rulers of the earth, serve Yahweh, kiss the Son, blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Who's the Son? It's Yahweh, blessed are those who take refuge in Him. That's God. So Psalm 2 is saying there is a Son who had an eternal decree said about Him that made Him Son, that's the eternal fromness, Kiss him, blessed are all who take refuge in him. He's Yahweh, is Psalm 2. So that today sounds to us like it's a, a time today, but it's an eternal decree about how the Son is from, begotten from the Father in some sense. And so, Psalm 2, Hebrews 1, says God is begotten of God. And that's why we get the Nicene Creed and we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, who was begotten from the Father before all the ages, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, same nature with the Father. How are we feeling so far? I like it, churning. I, mine's churning, that's good, that's good, that's good. Okay, a few more areas. I, I wanna especially kind of hone in on Arianism because this is, in a lot of ways, the I think the greatest controversy we've faced, and it's the reason of the first ecumenical council, it's the reason for the Nicene Creed. In some ways, the Nicene Creed is actually a response to Arius specifically. But the meaning of the word firstborn in Colossians 1.15 uh, made Arius think that uh, the son was a creature. Colossians 1.15 says this, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Firstborn, yep, born, he's begotten, he's born, he's created, right? So Arius said that, okay, it must mean he's created. But something for us to recognize is that Jesus is both God and man, which means he's born with respect to his humanity, right? I mean, Jesus was a baby. He was born from Mary. But at the same time, in his person, he is unborn. He's without birth. He's without beginning because he is God, right? So this beginningless God experienced a human beginning. That's mind-blowing. We're going to talk about the incarnation later, but for now, let's just put a pin in that extremely mind-blowing reality and say, okay, so he's both born and not born because he's not born because he's God, but then as God, he became born as a human, right? So that that could be one way to, 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 to handle this anyway. But also, Firstborn does not even necessarily mean created either. It could just as well refer to the son's status as the firstborn son. And we talked about this. We are made firstborn sons of God because he's the firstborn son, the only begotten son of God. The only begotten, the only son would be the only one to get an inheritance. And now we share in that inheritance because we are made sons as he is. Anyway, it could refer to his firstborn status because in New Testament times, the firstborn son would receive the whole family estate. And so what this may well be saying as well is, okay, hey, this firstborn of all creation gets the inheritance and now we share with him his firstborn inheritance. So that's Colossians 1.15. How are we feeling about that? Good. Okay. 
There's also Proverbs 8. This is the last specific passage that Arius used. Proverbs 8 is talking about wisdom personified. Does not wisdom call? Does not her understanding raise her voice? On, on, on. Proverbs 8. One of the passages that Arius used all the time was a translation that we now realize is actually not the best translation, but you might see this if you look about, on, about Arianism online. Proverbs 8.22. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Arius's translation was the Septuagint. We're familiar with that. We talked about the canon, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. The Septuagint said created, not possessed. So that's tough. Anyway, the Lord created me at the beginning of his work. And then it goes on. Ages ago, I was set up. I was brought forth. I was brought forth. So Arius, along with the entire early church, thought that Proverbs 8 was talking about Jesus. I was set up. I was brought forth. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work. The whole, even the believing church thought that that was a reference to Jesus. I'm not so sure. But anyway, this is how they handled it. Arius understood, obviously, to mean the son was a creature and not God. The church fathers understood it to mean that Jesus, in terms of his humanity, was created, but that he was uncreated in terms of his divinity, similar to what I just talked about. But I want to point out, this passage is not necessarily even referring to a person, either. Remember Proverbs 8, what's it talking about? It's talking about wisdom personified. Wisdom calls into the streets. She, she takes her stand, right? Plus, there's no other passage in, in the whole Bible where God is referred to with feminine pronouns. I'm not saying that means it's inappropriate to describe God that way or something like that. There's nothing wrong with femininity. It's not inferior. It's totally equal to masculinity. But the Bible doesn't do that. It doesn't identify God with feminine pronouns, but wisdom is identified with feminine pronouns here. So I think it's really unlikely that this is God the Son at all. I think it's, as it explicitly says, describing a pers wisdom personified as a woman. So anyway, but a lot of the early church thought that Proverbs 8 wasn't just talking about wisdom personified, but talking about the Son himself, because 1 Corinthians says that Jesus is the wisdom of God. Well, other passages also say Jesus is the power of God, and everywhere we see power of God, we don't say... So anyway, I just, I just don't... I'm not quite convinced that Proverbs 8 is talking about the Son anyway. But those were some areas... That's what Arius was about. He thought the Son was not God. A denial that the Son is God. He denied that the Son was the same nature with the Father. And that's why the Nicene Creed specifically reads what it says, same nature with the Father, because Arius couldn't say it, and they wanted to distinguish themselves from Arius. Okay. So far, so good? How are we doing? Okay, okay, okay. So there are some modern Arians today, as you may know. Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses. This is also heresy. One of the verses that they use, there's a really funny YouTube video about this that maybe I'll show you after, after the class. I don't want it to be officially online, um, but there, it's good. Anyway, John 1.1, 1, 1, you've heard this verse before. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then it skips down John 1.14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, right? We say, look, the Word was God and was with God. There are two personal identities and one God. Well, they retranslate this verse to read this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. This is ratified by no other Bible scholars except for their own people, who really aren't Greek scholars anyway, but that, anyway. So, they say the Word was a God, was a God. And then from there, they say that Jesus, he's a divine being, but not God himself. Um, and so, 
by doing this, they, they are breaking pretty universally recognized laws of Greek grammar that are in any textbook you would read about this. But anyway, if they were consistent, let, let's disregard that for a moment. If it even was allowed, if they were consistent, they'd retranslate the whole chapter to read something like this. There was a man sent from a God whose name was John. But they don't, they don't do that. They don't put the A there. John 1.6. John 1.12. He gave the right to become children of a God. They don't do that either. Okay. John 1.13. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of a God. They don't do that either. But that, if they were consistent, that's what they would do. You get what I'm No one has ever seen a God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. And literally, the article is the only God, not a God, the only God. So, and it's not consistent. That's the point. They can't translate it consistently because it would show how absurd their decision is to put it there. But they really don't want to say Jesus is God. So they're just saying a God, just to make him not God himself. John 20. Thomas, doubting Thomas. We know Thomas' story. Thomas was not around, unfortunately for him, when all the disciples saw Jesus. They're like, dude, he rose from the dead. And he's like, I don't believe it. I'm only going to believe it if I can poke my finger in his side. You know, all this stuff. Jesus shows up. He's like, hey, do it. Put your finger in my side. And this is how he this is what Thomas says. Thomas answers him, answered him, my Lord and my God. My God. Do you have the, uh, the Mormon translation of John 1-1? No. There's is even worse than Jehovah's Witnesses. Is it really? What's yeah. that one said? They they translate the word to mean uh, the Bible or like the gospel. And yeah. And they basically rewrite yeah. everything. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which is inconsistent because the Bible elsewhere talks about the Son as the Word. So, you but you can see that they're shoving a square peg in a circular hole. They can't actually make the argument well because it's opposite of what the Bible says. But yeah, thanks, Alex. So, okay, Thomas just said, my Lord and my God. He just called Jesus God, right? And here's how Jesus responds. Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. They will literally say, oh, when Thomas says this, he's praying to the Father. When he sees Jesus, he says, my Lord and my God. But he, he's not talking to Jesus. <laughs> Come on! Come on! No way! Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. He answered him. He's not looking at Jesus and saying, wow, my Lord and my God. No, he's saying, my Lord and my God. How do I know? Because he answered him. He didn't answer the Father. Okay, anyway, that's, I hate that. Okay, <laughs> let's move on. Let's move on. Subordination is <laughs> Okay, here we go. We're, we're, getting, we're getting crazy now. Okay, so I just, this whole thing went sideways for a second because I danced by accident. Okay, subordinationism is similar to Arianism. They'll, they would say the son has similar attributes that the father does, but he is subordinate and inferior in terms of his nature. So, okay, the father's here in terms of being, the son's close, but he's below. Subordinationism. That's an unacceptable argument for all the reasons we just said about um, about Arianism. But Basil the Great, I think, has a really helpful sentence on subordinationism specifically, and he's arguing against subordinationism. He says about the Son and the Father, the Son is whatever the Father is, and the Father is whatever the Son is. In other words, they are identical in terms of what they are. They share an identical nature. They are the same being. So subordinationism 
is unacceptable. That's a heresy. Adoptionism, I'm going to do this one as quickly as I can. Basically, Jesus became the son on his baptism day instead of was an eternal son. A number of verses that go against this. John 1.18, no one has ever seen God, the only begotten God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. No one's ever seen the only begotten God because he's eternally only... Sorry, that's not what I was... I, I confused myself. If he's the only begotten God and no one's seen him, then he wasn't begotten on his baptism day. He was begotten in a way that you can't see because he's invisible. He is eternally the only begotten son of God that no one has even seen. But if I, if he became son on his baptism day, I saw that. But no, I don't see him in his divinity. I don't, I only see his human nature, right? God is invisible. It's one of his attributes. No one's ever seen the only begotten God because the only begotten God is God and he's the son which John 1.14 says in the same context, you see what I'm saying? He didn't become the only begotten son of God. He is the only begotten son of God who has now come down and gotten baptized and has been now publicly identified as the, the only begotten son. But he doesn't become son. This is my son. It doesn't say, this is now my son. That's not what's said. This is my son. Hey, everybody, this is an announcement. This is my son. <laughs> anyway. Okay. Now... We get to talk about our dearly beloved Wayne Grudem. Wayne Grudem. Oh, okay. So I have recommended his book, and so I do feel responsible a little bit to interact with this idea that I think is... Okay, I'll tell you his view, and then I'll tell you what I think about it. He's not a heretic. He's not a heretic. I wouldn't offer you a book that was written by a heretic. I love Wayne Grudem. Most helpful systematic theology I've ever read. I've read a number of them. This one's really helpful. I love it. I don't think he's very helpful in the way he articulates his idea here. Wayne Grudem is one of some people, starting in 1977, so pretty brand new, um, who say this, the eternal functional subordination of the Son, abbreviated EFS, the eternal functional subordination. So the Son is equal in being to the Father, they say, but he eternally submits to the Father. Of course, they use terms like subordination, and we'll, we'll talk about how that's, a, I think, a poor use. So here's, we're going to talk about the specifics of that. Here's, if you want, my conclusion at the beginning. I think Grudem and other eternal functional subordinationists, I think they articulate this view in such a sloppy way that it sounds problematic and even sounds heretical sometimes. But the sum of what they believe is actually benign and is probably even true. But the way that they say it is so bad that it sounds like they're heretics, is, is my conclusion. It, that's my preface. So as we talk about whether or not there is an authority structure between the Father and the Son eternally, let's, let's remember a few, a few constraints to put on this conversation. I, I'm an engineer, so I, boundary conditions, right? What, what, what can we say? What can we not say? The only way, this we have to remember this, the only way the divine persons are eternally distinct is how? How are they eternally distinct? Relations of origin. They're relations. They're eternal relations. They're relations of origin. That's right. So they're unbegotten, that's the Father. Begotten, that's the Son. Proceeding, that's the Holy Spirit. If there is an eternal authority structure between them, it occurs within their relations. We have to say that. 
Grudem does say that. He said, not in their being, but in their function. We'll talk about the word function and how I think that's also an unhelpful word. But anyway, it'll occur in their eternal relations, if it exists at all. If it exists at all. And I'm not yet saying it does, or that it even doesn't, whatever authority is. It occurs in their relations, if there is one. And we also need to remember, the Father and the Son share an identical nature, and therefore they share an identical attribute of authority. They will share authority exactly equally. Otherwise, the Father has attributes in greater measure than the Son, and now we're subordinationists and we're heretics. We can't do that. That's a constraint. That's a boundary, right? So, if the Father has authority over the Son, it'll be because the Son has freely and voluntarily granted that authority within his relation to the Father specifically. Within his relation. Um... It's not because the Father simply just has more authority in himself. It's because, remember Basil, the Father is whatever the Son is. They're equal in authority. They're equally authoritative. So, how do we say they're equal in authority, but yet there might be an authority structure? That might be worth throwing the whole idea away. But anyway, if there is an authority structure, we have to describe it by saying they are equal in authority, but the Son has freely submitted to the Father within his relation to the Father. Equal in authority, but freely submits within his relation to the Father. So if we're going to say there's an authority structure, that's the way that we're allowed to do it. There are examples of the Son willingly submitting in his earthly life. John, uh, uh, Luke 22, we'll start with this. Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Okay, that, maybe that sounds reluctant, but here it is, John, John 10. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. Okay, he received a charge from his father. He's sent, right? That's a charge from his father, but no one takes it from me. I lay it down on my own. So he is freely doing it on his own volition. It's not, oh... The Father is just better than me, so I need to do it. No. The Father is more authoritative than me, so I just need to... No. I've received this charge, and I do it on my own volition. That's what Jesus is saying. I'm freely doing it. Okay. Those are some boundary conditions. I'm going to start, actually. I have four unhelpful but common objections to eternal functional subordination. Four unhelpful but common objections. Well, then don't worry. I have nine objections to eternal functional subordination. So we're going we're gonna to start nice and we're going to sandwich it. Do a little compliment. Okay. Reprove. And then we'll compliment him again. So we'll do a little, a little compliment sandwich for Wayne Groom here. Okay. So the first unhelpful objection is just, it's Arianism. If the son always submits to the father, then you imply that the son is inferior to the father. That's Arianism. Okay, that's, I think that's really unhelpful. Submission and authority do not imply inferiority. That we have to say. If Tommy Moore is preaching a sermon, there's some authority there, the authority of teaching. Is Tommy Moore better than us? N no, not necessarily. Not necessarily. Is, is a professor better than their student? Is a... Uh, I'm not going to... Uh, I don't want to do it. But, uh, okay, um, submit to your elders. Um, that's a command in scripture, right? There's qualifications to that, but submit to your elders. Are our elders better than us? Not necessarily. No. Sometimes 
there are pastors in a congregation that aren't even elders, but they submit because that's the role that they're in. It is not because they're inferior. Okay, submission authority should not be due to inferiority, or at least are not categorically due to inferiority. So I think that's a really unhelpful, really unfair objection. Just because someone submits or has authority doesn't mean they're better or worse than the other, even though in our culture we think that. Um, I mean, you can loosely like, relate 1 Corinthians 13, husbands submit to your wives. Your sure, wives okay, yeah, I wasn't going to bring that up because it's controversial. And we are going to talk about the family codes that are talked about. There's a lot of good stuff to talk about there. But let's take that example. Let's assume for the moment, and I mean, I work at a, a church that believes that, so you can kind of already know what I believe. But <laughs> let's say, let's assume for a moment, for the sake of conversation, that husbands and w- that, uh, wives should submit to their husbands. Let's say. Let's say that we believe that, which I do. Mm-hmm. Are wives inferior to their husbands? No. Heck no. Heck no. Authority and submission are not due to inferiority. They are not due to inferiority. At least they don't have to be. Sometimes with kids, look, you're just worse at this than me, so submit to me. You need to be quiet. But that's not the only kind of authority that exists. Anyway, it's not Arianism. It's not. Number two. By the way, um, it is 9.15. I recognize there's a prayer time. I am behind right now. So I just wanted to throw that out there. You're welcome to leave if you need to leave. Um, I'm probably going to step out because I'm okay, cool. with the kids. Thanks so much, David. Sorry that I didn't plan this super well for our, uh, our schedules here. Okay, objection number two that I think is unhelpful. If God has one will, which is true, there's one will in the divine nature. God is willing, right? He has a will. It's one will. It's not multiple wills. He's not conflicted. If God has one will, which he does, then how can one person will to submit to the other if both have identical wills? How can one person will to submit to the other if both have identical wills? Well, look, in some ways I don't know, but Jesus shows a distinction in their divine willings, even though they share an identical will. John 6, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. He came down from heaven. That's before he received a human will. So not to do my will is him in his divinity saying, not my will, but yours. I'm not saying that that's necessarily what's going on in the garden. I'm saying that's what went on when he was sent. He wasn't sent because of his divine, his human nature. He received a human nature in being sent, but he wasn't sent because of his human nature. You know what I'm saying? Alex is smiling. Uh, I got nothing right now. Got nothing. Okay. I'm happy to hear something if you got... We'll, we'll talk after yeah, class. After, we'll talk. Yeah. Okay, cool. But it's not the human nature that came down. I have come down from heaven. The human nature didn't do that. Common objection number three. The son only submits because of his human nature, which is obviously inferior. You see the inferiority again. To the divine nature and therefore must submit to God. So why does the son submit? Well, only because he has a human nature and humans have to submit to God. Again, the, the I have come down. I think we, we've kind of mentioned that already. But the Holy Spirit submits to the Father and the Son by being sent. And the Holy Spirit does not have a human nature to attribute that submission to. And so, in the operations, there is submission between the persons, even with respect to their divinity. The Holy Spirit does not have a human nature to kind of blame submission on, if you know what I mean. Um, so I don't think it's only due to human nature that the persons ever submit to each other. Objection four that I think isn't very well grounded. If submission and authority 
is mutual between the Son and the Holy Spirit, which we know that it is. Jesus sends the Holy Spirit. But then also in Matthew 4, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. If there's mutual submission there, we should expect mutual submission between the Father and the Son. But Jesus' submission to the Holy Spirit here, I think, should be attributed to his human nature, which is why he was led into the wilderness to be tempted. He's tempted as a human, as a representative of humans, so that he can endure temptation for us. That's why he is submitting himself to the Holy Spirit. So I think that actually should be attributed to his human nature. Um, so anyway, that's relevant because mutual submission can't be proven apart from the human nature, what's going on there. So those are four common, I think, unhelpful objections, um, pending Alex's idea that might change my mind after class about the will. Um, but okay, let's look at problematic aspects. Let's look at problematic aspects of eternal functional subordination. Number one, Wayne Grudem says, the biblical pattern is always from the Father through the Son, as in 1 Corinthians 8, 6. And I've, I've quoted, I've cited him in all of these notes. That's just not true. That's just not true. 2 Corinthians 13, 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, that is identifying the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. That's not the biblical pattern that Wayne Grudem is identifying is consistent throughout the Bible. I, I don't think it's actually true. Basil the Great, again, identifies a number of times where from whom is said of the Son, not just the Father, but also from whom is said of the Holy Spirit, not just the Father, in Colossians 2.19, Galatians 6.8. Basil also says that, look, not only that, but things happen through the Father. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his Son. The Father, it's through the Father that we're called into fellowship with the Son. So even through whom is not exclusively used of the Son. Um, and also 1 Corinthians 2, God has revealed to us through the Spirit. So the Spirit is through. The Son is through. The Father is through. The Spirit is from. The Son is from. The Father is from. They aren't from, but things happen from all of them. Things happen through all of them. So I, I don't think Wayne Grudem's right to say the biblical pattern is just always from the Father through the Son, um, uh, as he does explicitly say. Objection two to Wayne Grudem. Well, actually, not Wayne Grudem, but some eternal functional subordinationists. Grudem is, I think, a helpful exception to this. They will argue you can only pray to the Father through the Son to the Holy by the power of the Holy Spirit. Which that's Bruce Ware, right? Bruce Ware says yeah, that. And I, I think that's super unhelpful. I think that's literally contrary to explicit teaching of Scripture. We're going to talk about prayer later. But suffice it to say, Jesus says, ask me anything in my name and I will do it. Ask me. Ask me. Not the Me? Is Jesus getting in the way of the fuck? No, he's just saying pray to me for crying out loud, Bruce Ware. Do better. Okay. You, like all that to say, we can we can pray to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, and often, Grudem doesn't say this, but often, EFS people will say you shouldn't. Prop, one of the more problematic statements that Grudem makes is he says, if we do not have relational differences (parentheses) historically called subordination and function, you know that close parentheses, then there is no inherent difference in the way the three persons relate to one another. And consequently, we don't have three distinct persons eternally relating in different ways as Father, Son, Holy Spirit. 
So, okay, number one, half these relational differences historically been called subordination and function. Uh, as of 1977, yes, perhaps. Uh, on a, honestly, Wayne Groom's in a very minority of people. Most people don't affirm eternal functional subordination. It's not historically the case that people have done that, just letting you know. Um, but okay, that's hard. Uh, something about history, I didn't list that as an objection. But my real objection with this quote is that it, he says that they eternally functioned in a certain way. Since we're behind, I'll, I'll just summarize this. We know they related. Give them the love that you have loved me b before the foundation of the world, right? Give me that love. That's a relation. We know they related in eternity past, but do we know that they functioned or acted in eternity past? They acted in creation, but I, we don't have biblical evidence to say they functioned or related or worked in eternity past. So for him to even say that they functioned in a certain way, they acted in a certain way eternally, I, I think is using his framework eternally, but I don't think that that's how the Bible describes the eternal persons that way. Humans need to function and act and work in order to relate to each other lovingly. I need to, if I, if I want to bless Dustin, maybe I can like, hang his coat up or like buy him coffee. That's an action that I do to relate to him lovingly. But does the son need to act in order to relate to his father? I'm not convinced he does. He's God. I don't know that he needs to do that. He can just be it and relate it without acting. I think perhaps. So anyway, I'm not convinced that we know this as concretely as Grudem says, but this is going to be a really instrumental part of his argument later on. Also about the same quote, this is objection four, he, he re reduces the eternal relations to merely an authority structure in this sentence. He does that. But we know that the eternal distinctions between the persons are in their relations. So if he's saying this is all that's distinct about them is authority, then he's reducing unbegotten, begotten, and proceeding to simply an authority structure is what he's doing. I want to suggest, I do think Grudem is saying that in the sentence, but I think he's being inconsistent with the rest of all that he says. Elsewhere, he says that authority and submission occur within the relationship between them. I think he either mistyped it or this is a slip of the mind. I literally think he doesn't only think this because in the surrounding paragraphs, he actually says authority and submission occur within their relationship. And he also says, we don't totally know what those relationships are we only know that they mean they're from uh, in some sense. So he admits that we don't totally know it. But here he says, this is all it is. I, I think that's an inconsistency. And I don't know what else to do with that except to say I, I think it, that's just a mental mistake. But maybe he does think that. He just hasn't connected the dots. I'm not really sure. As you can now see, he's not using language consistent with Trinitarian thoughts that have happened for the past 2,000 years. So that's really unhelpful for Wayne Grudem to do that. Can't be an expert in everything, that's okay, but don't say things out of step and controversial if you're not going to make it consistent with what everyone else has said so we can actually figure out what you actually think. So anyway, that's, that's what I want to say about that particular statement. It's a problematic statement, but elsewhere he actually indicates he doesn't really believe that, whether Whatever he actually believes is hard to identify if you're going to conflict with yourself. Okay, objection five. Grudem never explicitly identifies unbegotten, begotten, or proceeding as relations 
or relationships, or even properties. We mentioned that some theologians describe the properties of being unbegotten and proceeding, those kinds of things. He never does that. But I really think he ought to do that because that would help clarify, I think even in his brain, what they are. I think he's confusing himself, to be totally honest. Um, he also says, the names father and son imply authority. I'll try to expedite this. Because in New Testament times, sons submitted to fathers, we should recognize that the son submits to the father, is his argument. I want to say, you don't know that that's the purpose of this analogy. Sons are from their fathers. That may be what that analogy is for, what that identity is for. You can't prove that the title son demonstrates an authority structure when the rest of what the Bible seems to be saying is simply that he's from the father. To take that extra step of identifying an authority structure might be going beyond what the analogy is for. That's objection six. Objection seven, the use of the word subordinate. Come on, that's a heresy. That's the name of a heresy. Why are you using it this way? Gruden doesn't intend for it to imply inferiority, but his word choice demonstrates that. Objection eight. We're coming in for a landing soon. Objection eight. He defines economy and operation. Now these are, what are economy and operation? Yeah, how the Trinity interacts with creation. Here's what Grudem says. The economy is the different ways the three persons act as they relate to the world and to each other for all eternity. So that's not how everyone else talks about it. So that's hard for us now to interact with what you're saying. So you can see his terms aren't in step with how the rest of people talk about this. I think he's doing this because, and I don't think he even realizes he thinks this, I think he's doing this because he sees consistency between the eternal relations and the operations. He sees that consistency. So what he does is he says, well, it's the same word. Oh, but we like to distinguish that so that we can talk about this more meaningfully. But anyway, that's another objection. He literally just changes the definition of a pretty well-known, well-used word. Objection nine, last of my objections. The sloppy, ooh, and this is, I think, I think this is the worst aspect of the eternal functional subordinate view. They use the word nature in a way that's different than what everyone else does. What, what is nature? We've talked about nature. What is nature? The nature of God. The shared essence of the Trinity, person of the Trinity. That's right, the shared essence. What they are, the attributes of God, three weeks ago, the, those attributes, that's the nature of God. What God is, right? Here's a few um, sentences for you. Eternal generate, that the Son is begotten is necessary to the very nature of God. That's Wayne Grudem. The, these distinct personal identities are essential to the very nature of God himself, and they could not be otherwise. So their relations, their personal identities, their relations, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, are inherent on their nature. That's really not quite true. Here's Packer. I love Jim Packer. I love the book Knowing God. I don't love this quote. You should still read the book, but just know that this quote is out of step. It is the nature, this is the worst one, it is the nature of the second person of the Trinity to acknowledge the authority and submit to the good pleasure of the first. That's a knowing God? Yeah. I did not notice that when I read it. It is the nature of the Son to submit to the Father. The nature! But what is the nature of God? The nature of God is the shared essence of the three persons. So does the son have a different nature than the father? 
Jim Packer doesn't believe that. He doesn't, he's a Trinitary. He doesn't believe that. But you see how they're using these terms that imply, literally, subordinationism, which is also the name of their view in part, which makes it rough. So, anyway, I think they need to clean up their terms so that people know what we're talking about. This has been a reason people have thought he's an Aryan, by the way, because he says stuff like this. Anyway, final analysis, sloppy use of key terms, nature, economy, inconsistent argumentation, saying that the relations are reduced only to an authority structure, but elsewhere saying there's an authority structure within the relations, unacceptable, acceptable. Subordination's a bad word, right? So those are kind of in, in gist, those are the problems of his view. But then he offers synonyms I should have cited the page where he does this. I'm sorry I didn't do that. But he offers synonyms of authority and submission. He says, initiate and respond. If you don't like the word subordinate, which you shouldn't, but he says, if you don't like the word, how about initiate and respond? How about lead and follow? How about direct and obey? These terms don't imply inferiority, I think. I don't think those terms imply inferiority. Compare initiate, respond, lead, follow, direct and obey to Donald Fairbairn. This is and we're like two minutes away from ending, so we're, we're coming in for a lady. I know we've, I've, I'm sorry I've kept you here for so long. Donald Fairbairn, he was my professor of uh, Trinity the Trinitarian theology. He's pretty well respected. Nobody thinks his views are like uber problematic. He says this in his book, Life in the Trinity, which I highly recommend as a book, by the way. It's in my bibliography. He says, in their being, the Father and the Son are equal, as is the Holy Spirit, but in each one's relation to the other. The Father holds a certain priority. He sends, and the Son is sent. He directs, and the Son obeys. That's in their relation with each other, eternal relation, directing and obeying. Compare that with what Grudem says. The Father has always had some kind of priority in the relationship. I think that's right. I agree with Donald Fairbairn. I think that's fair to say that there's a, a directing and an obeying eternally. I receive this from the Father, and I do it. He loves me. I respond in love. Not that there's necessarily response with God. He's outside of time. I, I understand that. But there's a directing. There's a priority. There's a sourceness to the Father that the Son doesn't have. And maybe that is leading and following. Maybe, if we want to use those terms. And I think that's an acceptable perspective. But man, when Wayne Grudem... Th that's what Donald Fairburn says. People think that's acceptable. Wayne Grudem, I think, is in some trying to say the same thing, but he's doing a really bad job, and he's accidentally sounding like a heretic. And since I offered you the book, I felt like I needed to like really punch into that. <laughs> a quick note on analogies. There's no way to make a perfect analogy to conceptualize the Trinity. Isaiah 40, to whom then will you liken to God, or what likeness will you compare him? He's uncomparable. So yeah, when we talk about water and steam and ice, we're just gonna make mistakes because God is a personal God who is one being and is three persons and that's just not like anything else we know because God is incomparable. God is awesome. We don't have time for a funny video, but... It's by Lutheran satire. Yes, yes. I have a, I have a tenth objection to uh, 